Two years ago, I have to say, there was no problem. Two years ago, I knew exactly what an icon looked like. It looks like this. Everybody's icon, but also the default position of a curator of Italian Renaissance paintings, which I was then. And in a way, this is also another default selection: Leonardo da Vinci's exquisitely soulful、um, image of the lady with an ermine. And I use that word "soulful" deliberately. Or then there's this, or rather these, the two versions of Leonardo's Virgin of the Rocks that were about to come together in London for the very first time. In the exhibition that I was then in the absolute throes of organising, I was literally up to my eyes in Leonardo, and I had been for three years. So this was the, he was occupying every part of my my brain, and Leonardo had taught me during that three years about what a picture can do, about taking you from your own material world into a, a spiritual world. He said actually that he believed the job of the painter was to paint everything that was visible. And invisible in the universe. It's a huge, a huge task,、um, and yet somehow he achieves it. He shows us, I think, the human soul. He shows us the capacity of of ourselves to move into a, a spiritual realm,、um, to to see a, a vision of the universe that's more perfect than our own, to see God's own plan in some sense. So this, in a sense, was really what I believed an icon was. At about that time, I started talking to Tom Campbell, director here of the Metropolitan Museum, about what my next move might be.、Um, the move, in fact, back to a, a, an earlier life, one I'd begun at the British Museum, back to the world of three dimensions of, of sculpture and of decorative arts, to take over the Department of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts. Here at the Met, but it was an incredibly busy time, and all the conversations were done at very peculiar times of the day,、um, over the phone.、Um, um, with and and in the end, I accepted the job without actually having been here again. From you know, I'd been there a couple of years before, but on that particular visit. So it was just before the time that the Leonardo show was due to open when I finally made it back、um, to, to the Met, to New York, to see my new domain, to see. Um, to see what European sculpture and decorative arts looked like beyond those Renaissance collections with which I was so already familiar, and I thought on that very first day I'd better tour the galleries. 57 of these galleries, like 57 varieties of baked beans, I believe, and um, and um, and I walked through and I started in my comfort zone、um, in the in the in the Italian Renaissance. And then I moved gradually round, feeling a little lost sometimes,、um, and but my, my head also still full of the Leonardo exhibition that was about to open. And I came across this, and I thought to myself, "What the hell have I done?" <laughs> there was absolutely no connection in my mind at all. And in fact, if there was any emotion going on, it was a kind of of repulsion. This object felt utterly and completely alien, silly at a level that I hadn't yet understood silliness to be. <laughs> and then it was made worse. There are two of them. <laughs> so I started thinking about why it was, in fact, that I'd. Disliked this object so much. What was the anatomy of my of my distaste? Well, so much gold, so vulgar, you know, so nouveau riche, frankly. And、um, and the and you know Leonardo himself had preached against 
the use of gold. So I was, it was absolutely anathema at that moment. And then those little pretty sprigs of flowers everywhere. <laughs> and finally, that pink. That damned pink. It's so, such an extraordinarily artificial color. I mean, it's a color that I can't think of anything that you actually see in nature that looks that, that shade. The object even has its own tutu. <laughs> this little flouncy, spangly, bottomy bit that sits at the bottom of the vase. And, as I, and it reminded me, in an odd kind of way, of my niece's fifth birthday party, where, um, where all the little girls had come either as a princess or a fairy. There was one who'd come as a fairy princess. You should have seen the looks. Um, and, um, um, and I realized that this object in my, it was in my mind, born from the same mind, from the same womb, practically, as Barbie Ballerina. And then there's the elephants. <laughs> Those extraordinary elephants with their, their little sort of strange, sinister expressions and Greta Garbo eyelashes, um, with these golden tusks and so on. And I realized I was, this was an elephant that had absolutely nothing to do with a majestic march across the Serengeti. It was a, a Dumbo nightmare. <laughs> But something more profound was happening as well. Um, These objects, it seemed to me, were quintessentially the kind that I and my liberal left friends in London had always seen as summing up something deplorable about the French aristocracy in the, in the 18th century. The label had told me that these pieces were made by, um, by the Sèvres manufactory, made of porcelain um, in the late 1750s, and designed by a designer called Jean-Claude Duplessis, actually somebody of extraordinary distinction, as I later learned. Um, But for me, it was that they, they summed up a kind of um, the, the sort of sheer uselessness of the aristocracy in, in, the, um, in, the, in the 18th century. And you know, I and I colleagues had, had always thought you know, that these objects, in a way, summed up the, the idea of, you know, no wonder there was a, a revolution, or indeed, <laughs> thank God there was a revolution. Um, <laughs> And there's a sort of idea, really, that if you owned a vase like this, then you know, there was really only one fate possible. <laughs> ah, so there I was in, the, in a sort of paroxysm of, of horror. But I took, I took the job, I went, and I went on looking at these vases. I sort of had to, because they're on a, a through route um, in the Met. So almost anywhere I went, there they were. And they had a kind of odd sort of fascination, like, you know, like a, like a car accident, um, where I couldn't stop looking. Um, and as I did so, I started thinking, well, you know, what are we actually looking at here? And what, and I, what I started with was, was understanding this as really a, a supreme piece of, of design. It took me a little time, but that tutu, for example, actually, this is a piece that does dance in its own way. It has an extraordinary lightness, and yet it's also amazingly balanced. It has this kind of sculptural ingredients, um, and, um, and then the play between actually really quite carefully disposed color and gilding and the sculptural surface is really, is really rather remarkable. And then I realized that the, this piece went into the kiln four times, at least four times, in order to arrive at this. How many, how many moments for accident can you think of that could have happened to this piece? And then remember, not just one, but two. So he's having to, they're having to, he's having to arrive at two exactly matched vases of this kind. And then this question of uselessness. Well, actually, the, the end of the trunks were originally candle holders. 
Um, and so what you would have had were candles uh, uh, on either side. And imagine that effect of candlelight on that surface, on this slightly uneven pink, on the beautiful gold. It would have glittered in, the, in an interior, a little, like a little firework. Um, and at that point, actually, a firework went off in my brain. Somebody reminded me that that word fancy, which in a sense, for me, encapsulated this object, actually comes from the same root as the word fantasy. And that what this object was, just as much in a way, in its own way, as a Leonardo da Vinci painting, is a portal to somewhere else. This is, a, this is a, an object of, 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 of the imagination. And if you think about you know, the mad 18th century operas of the time the, the, that set in, set in the Orient, if you think about divans and perhaps even opium-induced visions of pink elephants, then at that point, this object starts to make uh, uh, sense. This is, a, this, is a, this is an object which is all about escapism. It's about an escapism that, that happens, um, that the aristocracy in France sought very deliberately to distinguish themselves from ordinary people. It's not an escapism that um, we feel particularly happy with today, however. And, I, and again, I, going on thinking about this, I realized that, that in a way we're all victims of a certain kind of tyranny of the, of the triumph of modernism, whereby form and function in an object have to follow one another or deemed to, to, to do so. And that extraneous ornament, ornament is seen as really essentially criminal. It's a triumph in a way of bourgeois values rather than aristocratic ones, and that seems fine. Except for the fact that, um, except for the fact that it, it becomes a kind of sequestration of, of imagination. And so just as in the 20th century, so many people had the idea that their, their faith took place on the, on the Sabbath day um, and the rest of their lives, their, 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 their lives of you know, washing machines and orthodontics, took place on, a, on another day, then um, um, we, I think, have done the, started doing the same. We've, we've allowed ourselves to... to lead our fantasy lives in front of screens, in the dark of the cinema, um, with a television in the, in the corner of the room. And we've, we've eliminated, in a sense, that, that constant of, of the imagination that these vases represented in, in people's lives. So maybe it's time we got this back a little. Um, I think it's beginning to happen. Um, in London, for example, with these extraordinary buildings that have been appearing over the last few years, redolent in a sense of science fiction, turning London into a kind of fantasy playground. It's actually amazing to look out of a high building nowadays there. Um, but even then, there's a resistance. Londoners call these buildings the gherkin, the shard, the walkie-talkie, bringing these soaring buildings down to earth. Um, there's an, an idea that we really... We don't want this uh, um, anxious-making, imaginative journeys to happen in our, in our daily lives. I feel lucky in a way. Um, I've, I've encountered this object. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I found him on the internet when I was looking up a reference, and, um, and, and there he was. And unlike the, um, the, the pink elephant vase, this was a kind of love at first sight. In fact, reader, I married him. I bought him, and he now adorns my, uh, my office. Um, He's a Staffordshire figure, um, made in the middle of the 19th century. Um, he represents the actor Edmund Keane playing Shakespeare's Richard III. And it's based, actually, on a more elevated piece of porcelain. So I loved, on, a, on an art historical level, I loved that, that layered quality that, that he has. But more than that, I, I love him. 
in a way that I think would have been impossible without the pink Serge vase in my Leonardo days. I love his orange and his and pink britches. I love the fact that he seems to be going off to war, having just finished the washing up. Um, <laughs> and he seems also to have forgotten his his sword. I love his pink little cheeks, this munchkin energy, and in a way, he's become my sort of alter ego. He's I hope a little bit dignified, but mostly rather vulgar, <laughs> and unenergetic. I hope too.、Um, I let him into my life because the Serf Pink Elephant Vase allowed me to do so. And before that, Leonardo, I understood that this object could become part of a journey for me every, every day, sitting in sitting in my in my office. And I really hope that others, all of you. Visiting objects in the museum and taking them home and finding them for yourselves will allow those objects to flourish in your imaginative lives. Thank you very much.